Well, good morning. John chapter 15 is where we return this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to respond to uh, Art's comment a minute ago. I think the important question is not whether my hair will be gray by the time we finish going through the countries of the world, whether my hair will be gray by the time we finish John's gospel or, or not. That remains to be seen. Seems like it's changing a little bit every day, so I don't hold out hope. John 15, we'll begin in just a moment to read at verse 12. Uh, ever since early in chapter 13, we have been watching our Lord prepare his disciples for his departure, which just keep in mind as we're going week in and week out through this section, keep in mind how very near this is. We're spending a lot of time thinking about what he is telling them, how he's preparing them. Uh, but for them, this is a single conversation that is then to lead immediately to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's been preparing them on a number of fronts. Uh, and now the subject of the life and love of God through Christ has come up. And it's in that context that we come to verse 12 here this morning, which starts us on a section that, as we're going to see, is really all about relationships. Not relationships in general, but relationships of a particular kind, a particular set of relationships, all of which involve the people of God. Three relationships, in fact, is what we're going to be hearing, uh, each of which are caused by this experience of Christ's love that he, has, that he has brought up in this discussion. So what we're going to see is this. In verses 12 to 14, we're going to find that Jesus' love come to sinners, experienced by sinners, his special saving love for his people. We're going to find that that love causes a particular relationship to exist between his people, between each other of his people. We find then as well in verses 14 to 16 that that saving love of Christ on his people causes a particular relationship to exist between his people and himself. And that will be very special and helpful for us to hear our Lord talk to us about what our relationship with him is really like because of the love he's given to us. That's as far as we'll get this morning. Uh, but the next time that we come to this text, after we pause next Sunday to focus in a special way on Christ's resurrection, uh, we'll see in verses 18 to 25 yet a third relationship. Uh, we find there that being an object of his love causes a particular relationship to exist between his people and the world around us. So this is where we're going. Let's start here by reading. I'll read verses 12 to 17 of John chapter 15 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Our Lord continues in this way. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, 
But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Three sets of relationships that we start to hear about this morning. The first relationship that we notice here is the relationship between us as those whom Christ has savingly loved. He starts this all off in verse 12 saying, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Our Lord is speaking to the 11 here and he's speaking to them as the representatives of his chosen people. We talked for a bit last week about the, uh, the, the different number of ways that God's word speaks to us about the love of God in different contexts. And I hope that that was helpful. It comes into play here again this morning. We know that the whole world has experienced the love of God in crucial, powerful ways. But the love that God is describing here Love in which Jesus lays down his life on their behalf to their everlasting good. That particular manifestation of God's love is not experienced by the whole world or else there is no need for any more sharing of the gospel. For whom has Christ laid down his life in verse 13? He has laid down his life for his friends. He didn't do it because his friends have been such good pals to him. And we know that that's the case because as Paul writes in Romans 5, until this saving love comes to a person, what is that person? That person is in fact an enemy of God. He is in fact, as Paul describes all of us in Ephesians 2, 3, by nature a child of wrath. He says of himself and of the rest to whom he's writing there in Ephesians, we all were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But what God in Christ has done with this love is he has chosen to make this people his friends. And that's what we'll look more closely at second this morning. But first, we need to understand what we hear from John about this relationship that is existing among the people of the king because of this love that has come to us. And in a way, our, our passage here is pretty sparse on description of the relationship. It only names it here. It only commands it. He says, love one another as I have loved you. We get verse 13 in there as well. And here's a question for you to, to be thinking about. Is verse 13 giving us some description of how our love for each other should look? Is that what verse 13 is doing? When he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Is Jesus intending to describe for us how our love for each other is going to look? Could be easy for us to say no to that question. And we would in some ways have good reason for saying no, because we know that this is very directly a statement about what? This is a statement of what Christ is going to do for us on the cross, isn't it? in a very unique way, a way that we do not duplicate. So he's obviously not saying here that in our loving of each other, we should be trying to atone for each other's sins, for example, is he? 
He's definitely not saying that. But I ask this question for a reason. I think it's a very helpful question. Is this intending to describe for us how our love for each other should look? What I like about that question is it brings up a great example here of why it's so important that we know our Bibles well in a full way. And it's because if we do, then we're in a position to let the Bible interpret itself for us. And as it turns out, this reality of Christ loving us, that whole concept, had a tremendous impact on this author, the Apostle John. You may remember that in the rare moments that he even mentions himself in the course of his gospel, uh, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You remember that? Which is not at all as it might sound. It's not a statement of superiority, is it? The disciple that Jesus loved way more than anyone else. That's not what he's doing. Rather, he's describing his own amazement at this fact. He's saying to us, you don't really even need to know this guy's name. All that matters about him is that he was someone whom Jesus chose to love. That's who this was. That's all you need to know about this man as he speaks about himself. This all made a deep impression on John. And when he wrote a letter to other believers, the one that we call 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, the Holy Spirit uses him to describe this relationship and expand upon this relationship between believers. So this first one that we're seeing here. And I'd like you to look at that with me. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3, if you would. And first find verse 13. And remember the context of our own passage, what we didn't read together, but what comes right next after verse 17 in our text. Remember that what he's about to speak of uh, are words concerning the world's hatred of us. That's the third relationship that's going to come up for us. 1 John 3, 13, you can see verse 11 hanging right above this, where he said, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Then he says this in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Hmm. Do you think he has this morning's teaching from Christ in mind as he's writing here? And it gets even better. He makes a summary statement down in verse 23 that starts with these words. This is his commandment. And realize as we're thinking about this that in John's gospel, John has recorded for us three direct statements from Christ about what is commanded of us. So we've heard, John, and we've heard all of them by now, John 6.29, the crowd asked them, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Right? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Then we heard in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So We heard that one. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And now we've had our own context of John 15, 12, repeating that same command, to love one another. Those are the three command statements he has given us directly from the mouth of Jesus. Believe in Christ and love one another. 
Notice then, how does John boil down Christ's commands to his people into a singular in verse 23 there? He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Is there any doubt in your mind that John is representing the exact teaching that Christ gives us this morning in John 15, 12. All of that has been set up. Okay? I bring us to 1 John to, in order to see how the Holy Spirit elaborates on the command, the bare command that we heard in John 15, 12, to love one another. So look at verse 16. Let's read some of this with some commentary here in between as we go. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so we say, oh, okay. So it looks like when he spoke in John 15, 13 about laying one's life down for his friend, that there was a sense in which he's describing the brotherly love he's calling us to. Because that's exactly the point, the connection that John makes here in 1 John. We'll never bring eternal life to one another by our own willing sacrifices. But here's the thing. We can become life-giving to one another by our own willing sacrifice. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Friends, this is exactly Jesus' point in verse 14 of our text, where he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. This is how these friends of Christ, those he has died for, this is how those friends are made manifest, are revealed by their obeying his commands, all of his commands. But in particular, in this boiled down way, his command to love one another. That is not, that obedience is not what has made them his friends. It is what characterizes his friends. And as you're coming back to John 15, I would ask you this question. Have you truly experienced God's saving love in your life that we're hearing about from our Lord? Have you experienced the saving love of God in Christ? If your answer is yes, then a follow-up question could be, really? You say, yes. So the, the, my point is, how do you know that? How do we speak about our experience of the saving love of God in Christ? And there are a number of ways to answer that question. But what John tells us this morning is this. It's that the saving love of Christ is not something that comes to a person and simply takes up intellectual residence in their mind and carries no impact. His saving love given is like a seed planted in soil that has been prepared to receive it. This giving and receiving of Christ's saving love only takes place as God has caused his beloved to at last discover some things. To discover at last our true guilt before him and when we are actually rightly condemned before the righteous throne of God. 
a realization of the genuinely destined failure of our best efforts at self-justification. Such a person has been shown that the category of sinner that everyone despises as they encounter in the people around them, arrogance, unkindness, self-centeredness, unfaithfulness, they've suffered the realization that that category isn't made up of those people, but the horrifying discovery is that it is me. All this time I hate, I hate it, it was me. That's the discovery that God, by his grace, gives to a person as he's preparing us to receive his saving love. The way that Jesus described it in Matthew 5 is to say that those who belong to him are those who have been made to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, he said. They're those who have been made to sense their own emptiness as relates to true goodness and righteousness. So that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they have been shown a need as God is preparing them to be saved. And the direct answer to why in that question, why is this blessed? He says, for they shall be satisfied. This is a work that God will do. And when God has brought someone through those painful self-realizations, the realization of their hopelessness in themselves and of their need for Christ, and, positively, of Christ's actual willingness to love them. When a person is made to see this as it truly is, and then that person realizes that there are others who are just like them, who are in fact wretches in and of themselves, who have been saved by pure grace, and are now following Christ like sheep following a shepherd. Jesus says to us, and then John reiterates, not only must we love them, but we will love them. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. This is what he says here in 1 John. And so, we can draw some conclusions then. Say, say whatever you want to say about having received the life of Christ, eternal life. If you are still a walking, talking individual convinced of his own superiority, his own greatness, as Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, the one who is forgiven little loves little. So that there is no gratitude driving your life, your thoughts are about you, and others' thoughts should be too. And if others fall short, you have no time for them. There is no forgiveness. There's no meekness in your wake. There is only self-concern in your wake. If you're still a walking, talking version of that, John says, you should be very afraid that you were in fact a walking, talking dead man or dead woman. He says, the way we know you have passed out of death into life is because of your love for the brothers. Based then, not only on what we're seeing in John 15, but also on what we just read John to say in 1 John 3, what we recognize this morning is that Jesus' saving love causes, I really wrestled with what's the best word to use there, creates, causes, I settled on causes, but there's a few good options. We recognize that Jesus' saving love causes a particular relationship with 
his people among themselves. It's a relationship characterized by that love of Christ so that we love analogously like he has loved us. We open our hearts to each other. We love in deed and truth, not just with word and tongue. Did Jesus love us with word and tongue, or did he love us in deed and in truth? This is what characterizes the relationship that is created by the reception of Jesus' saving love for us. And we might add to this that, that the love with we love with Christ's love in all the contexts of our lives. So it affects the way that we love, the way we think about everything. This is so timely. I was just in a discussion earlier this morning with someone on this very topic. Because we love with the love that Christ has given to us, we do not love the world system of rebellion. Because Christ does not love the world system of rebellion. We love the people of the world in the way that Jesus has loved the people of the world. So we seek to do good. We seek to bless everywhere we go. We point the people of this world to the Savior that has been given. We seek the good of the city where we reside as exiles, like the prophet Jeremiah wrote. It affects all of those spheres, but this concerns the people of God. What we're hearing Christ call us to here, who Jesus has drawn near to in his saving love. What it has done is it has united us together. We are united by his very presence and power at work within us. I was helped very much this week to hear, uh, it was Sinclair Ferguson who was speaking, very helpful as usual, and the point that he was making was that there are not, if there are 120 of us in this room, there are not 120 Holy Spirits each residing one of us. There is one Spirit of God that indwells all of us, and this is what ties all of us together as one body, in fact. It's a powerful thing to bear in mind, and it really speaks to the extent of our union with each other in Christ. My friends, if all of that is true, we will love the community of God's people with a love that is unique, in fact, a love that will demonstrate our identity, not only to one another, but to the watching world. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the first relationship that is held out to us here that is causally related to our having been loved by Christ in a way that the shepherd has loved the sheep for whom he laid down his life. The second relationship that we find here, starting in verse 14, we could say it this way, the love of Jesus causes a particular relationship with him, between us and him. We get to find out this morning more about the nature of our relationship as the children of God with the king. That relationship we've been hearing about with each other is is a blessed thing for us to hear. It's powerful. But we need to recognize it's not even the relationship that's given primary attention in our text. This second relationship that we find laid out here is the one that's given primary attention. The relationship that we have with King Jesus himself because he has loved us. 
And it's very interesting what we find here. In part, it's, really, it's interesting because of, because of the picture that Jesus gives us to convey this, because of the words that he uses. And Jesus makes his point about the relationship that he has created between us and him. Here, he makes his point with the idea of friendship. He says in verse 14, you are my friends. And for that matter, he said in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Friends. Is it often that we think of our relationship to Christ in those terms? It may be we should think about it in those terms more, but only if we are trained, if we have thought carefully about what picture is coming into our minds as we think of his friendship. Because that word on its own probably puts images in our head right away. And really, we have to start by surveying those images that come to our minds and culling them to be sure we're not getting the wrong picture here. There's some pretty easy examples at hand, just given what he tells us here. Uh, how about, so to start with this, is verse 14 how your relationships with the friends in your life works? Is that what it is like to be a, your friend? You are my friends if you do what I command you? Is, there's another question, is that statement of Jesus about our friendship, is it reciprocal? He says it to us, do we say it back to him? We're friends after all. Jesus, you are my friend if you do what I command you. Is that what we say to him? It may not be so easy to just use the word friend here and be done with it. We have to be cautious. Also, we might not think about it consciously when we read verse 14, but we know full well, and I think these questions I'm bringing up make this obvious, that the nature of a friendship, of a given friendship, depends entirely upon the person that we're being friends with. You remember in The Lion King, when after years of singing Hakuna Matata with his new lion friend, Pumbaa realizes one day that Simba is the king of the land. Do you remember that moment? And he immediately bows down and calls him my liege. This is immediately the reaction. It made me wonder, thinking about this this week, what it's like to be Vladimir Putin's friend in Russia. I'm sure he has friends. Do you think his friends have the same kind of experience of friendship with him as they have with the other friends in their lives? So when Jesus says here, you are my friends, instead of quickly jumping to certain excited conclusions about informality and chumminess, what we really should be asking is, what is it like to be friends of the king? There's a hymn that the church has sung since the 1850s called Crown Him With Many Crowns. That song? I won't sing it for you. It, but it, it calls Christ there the potentate of time. What's it like being friends with the potentate of time? John 15 is where we get to find out. We've already marveled at the first thing on the list. This is a pretty amazing list that we're given here of what it's like to be friends of the potentate of all creation. 
Uh, we've already seen verse 13, being his friend means we become objects of his saving love. But the second thing that we find is one that wouldn't often f- find its way into a description of friendship. To be a friend of this one means that we exist in an authority, obedience relationship to him. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Those whose lives are not lived under an authority, obedience relationship to Christ are those who are not his friends. It's a part of the definition of being his friend. To exist in an authority, obedience relationship. But I think that that, as helpful as that is, I think the question of it is what gives rise to some of what Jesus says next, because it does kind of beg a question. If that's all that being his friend entails, then how is being his friend any different from being his servant or his slave? His servant does what he commands. And this is what Jesus does next, isn't it? He immediately explains how their friendship is different from a mere servant relationship. Well, the word is slave, a mere slave relationship. And it is so helpful what he says here. I'm just, I'm just astounded over and over again as we study God's word carefully how very, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Practical is the wrong word. How much it is clear that Jesus is a man speaking to us. He knows what we need to understand. He knows what we might grow confused in. The answers to our confusion are really there for us. He has not given us a a mysterious text. Over and over again, I come to questions. And I might even spend time really thinking about how it could be this or that. And then I just, what do you know, read the next verse. And, And there it is. And I say, shame on you, Blake. Learn for next time. And eventually I do it again. This is so helpful. The difference between being Jesus' servant and being his friend is not one of obedience. Because he is the potentate of time. So we don't think for a moment that when he says, no longer do I call you servants, that he's undoing what he's just said, or that he's undoing what he said in Luke 17, when he told these same men, after you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That was a right perspective for them to have about their obedience. He's not undoing any of that here. When he calls us his friends, and he says he no longer calls us servants, it's not his point. So what's his point? His point about being his friends, has to do with revelation. The revealing of information, of knowledge, of will. The revealing of his divine purposes. That's the point he's making here. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for... All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. There's no scratching of of our heads necessary. He tells us what he meant with this illustration. This is a distinction of revelation. One writer described it like this. He said, an absolute monarch demands obedience in all his subjects. All his subjects. His slaves, however, are simply told what to do. While his friends are informed of his thinking. 
Enjoy his full confidence and learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with full understanding of their master's heart. So also here, Jesus' absolute right to command is in no way diminished, but he takes pains to inform his friends of his motives, plans, purposes. This is what he says he's doing for us. And I'll tell you what, thinking of verse 15, I wish we could stay here for another hour to think about the two words there that start off verse 15. No longer. Guys, he says, no longer do I call you servants. As long as God has put his saving love upon anyone, they have known his care, his protection, his grace. So they have been friends in that sense, in those senses. But as far as this metaphor goes, he has called them servants until now. It means something redemptive historical. It means something of a development in God's plans throughout time. It means that in the ages before Christ and in the covenantal relationships before Christ, God's dealings with his people have involved him telling them what to do at times without giving them the fullness of understanding about his ways and purposes that he is now giving them in Christ. This is actually a terribly significant thing for him to say. No longer do I call you servants. Once upon a time, a long time ago, now it seems, probably a few extra gray hairs in the beard ago, we spent a whole Sunday on this idea, what the New Testament calls the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3.5, the mystery, he says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. To be his friend is to be an object of his saving love. It means to live in an authority, obedience relationship with him. And it means, as this direct metaphor is getting across to us, to be brought into his revelation of the very plans and purposes of God. And it's true even in that moment. Even in this moment when the disciples, Jesus will say in chapter 16, that they still cannot grasp everything. The Holy Spirit's coming is still needed. And yet it is true that Jesus has told them everything he has heard from his Father. That's how verse 15 ends. I have called you friends for... All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. There's this incredible place in 1 Peter 1. Peter describes the Old Testament prophets who were actually used as vessels of Scripture to give prophecies to foretell the coming of Christ. Peter describes them as being, in their own time, desperately interested and curious as to the full revelation of the very things they were writing about. Not just them, but the angels, it turns out, had to live with a great amount of discomfort and curiosity. Verse 12 there says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. My friend, when is the last time that you considered that the truths that we so take for granted 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the specific details of our salvation in Christ by the power of the gospel? When's the last time you considered the fact that when we talk about such things, we're talking about things that angels spent centuries desperate to understand? And they've been given to us. So boy, what an occasion for us for pride and puffing up on our account, isn't it? I mean, look at us. Look at what we have. What does Jesus immediately do next? He does the exact same thing he did immediately at the end of John 6. And no sooner had Peter there made the famous declaration, you are the Holy One of God, when everyone else had left, right? No sooner does, does, does he declare that than Jesus says, did I not choose you? Does the very same thing here. His followers are a party to such revelations as this. Why? Not because they are better or wiser or made the right choices, but because first and foremost, Jesus chose them. He follows it immediately with this in 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This isn't the point here, but you should just marvel again at the intra-Trinitarian relationships that we're hearing here because in the last chapter, whatever was asked in his name, Jesus would give them. And now whatever is asked in his name, the Father gives them. Which one is it? The answer is yes. Not only did he choose them, but what we find here is that he chose them for a purpose, didn't he? A purpose outside of themselves. He chose them and he appointed them. That word literally means set them aside. It's the very same word he just used in verse 13 about his life. There he set aside his own life for them. And now in 16, he sets them aside for his purpose, which is, it says, to bear fruit. But not just any fruit. The, the direct point that's being made is that they are set aside to bear fruit that will last. That's the purpose of God in his calling them and appointing them. Do you notice in verse 16, too, that the, the so that's stack up on each other? He appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit, abiding fruit that remains, so that what you ask in Jesus' name will be given you. What's the end of this saving love by which his people are chosen? The end is that they would become vessels by which God's will is brought about on earth. He has ordained both the prayers and the works of his people, his children, his friends, to accomplish his will. This is an amazing sequence of events that we see here. And all of it, this is what we need to understand this morning, all of it is being given to us as having been caused by the reality of being loved by Christ when he went to the cross. Now, it's hard to say, as to verse 17, whether it's intended as a wrap-up of what we're seeing here this morning, a sort of a summary statement for verses 12 to 16, or whether it's a kickoff statement for verses 18 and following. 
I think it's likely both. It's just a well-placed transition between the two. It keeps both halves together. Repeating it here puts a nice bow on 12 to 17. You see how it pairs with verse 12. Verse 12 said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. It does that very well, but it also sets this love of Christ and all of its results, it sets that up against the hatred of the world, which is the very next thing that he's going to move to. And we'll see that contrast here next time. But as for this morning, what is it that we have seen? We've seen about our Lord that his saving love given to fallen men, women, and children is a powerful thing. It's not a nominal thing. It's not a casual thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a thing that comes with power. How much power, how much impact is there in a single individual who has been compelled by the love of Christ to pour out their life for others? I mean, Christ told us there in verse 16 what God is going to do with that individual. Abiding fruit, remaining fruit. How much impact is there in one of those individuals? How powerful then is an entire community made up entirely of such individuals? Living, loving, humble, hungry to pour out in self-sacrifice to meet the needs of one another. Seeking, as Paul describes in Romans, to outdo one another in showing honor. You know what it'll look like on this planet as such a thing is planted by God. It'll look like a beacon of light in a dark place. It'll look like a shining city on a hill when this is seen. A people unified, living in truth, speaking in truth, standing on truth knowing what truth is, and therefore knowing what true love is, because they have been loved with that love. And they have come to know the risen Christ. One thing is for sure when you find that, those in love with the world will hate us. And this is no attempt to be attractive in a way that woos the affections of the world around us. That is a fool's errand. The difference is an undeniable one, and that's the intention. And my friends, here's what verse 16 assures us of as we think about that image. Verse 16 assures us that God will use it. He does not need us to get very creative in advertising. He calls us to be faithful and to pour ourselves out in love to each other, and he says he will use it. The prayers of the saints that are prayed in Jesus' name in accord with the purposes of God, God will bring them to pass by means of this powerful thing that he is doing. The fruit is his. Didn't we see that last week? The fruit's his to cultivate. And he will do it. It's the whole reason that father and son have done what they've done. That in saving us, they've not just plucked sinners up into heaven, but they have set to work for the rest of our lives, transforming us progressively with this love so that they will then live out their lives as willing instruments in a Redeemer's hands. I mean, it's just true. 
what it said here. The love of Christ produces fruit that abides. Our love will flow from His because it will abide in His. And as a result, it will bear His fruit. And I hope, my friends, that this picture gives us a tremendous amount of confidence and peace, the peace that can only come for those who truly understand God's sovereignty in bringing His purposes to completion. It makes us very, it gives us the ability to be very single-minded and focused. And in a way, I think that is helped by what he says in 1 John 2. Can I close this? Simply by reading 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Where John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what manner of love you have given to us that we should be called sons of God, that we should be called beloved by God in Christ, that we should be called your friends. We worship you in gratitude this morning, and we ask you together, Father, fill us with the realization of the implications of all of that. What fear have we in this world? if such things are true of us. We sense, Father, that we are living in days in which we need to be made to stand very steadily on these convictions that we're hearing about. And so we ask for your help, Father. Help us to love you more than our retirement accounts. Help us to love you so that we would live for the flourishing of your purposes, your kingdom, your people, over and above living for our own comfort and pleasure. We cannot do any of this without your grace. And we trust you, Father, to keep such guiding light as these before our eyes until the day when we stand in your presence. We simply ask, Lord, cause us to be faithful among our generation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.